So the last few weeks we've been talking about uh, salvation and we've been talking about assurance. We've been talking about security of our salvation. And uh, we, we have uh, been going over numerous topics. And it's, it's interesting. You ever have a plan and the plan doesn't go according to the plan? And when I was in Arizona, I had this plan. And uh, the plan's not going according to the plan. It seems like the sermons have been lengthened in this, in this series. But I do feel like it, it is from the Lord that we've been covering what we've been covering. Next week, we will be in Luke chapter number three and continuing our series on Luke, probably looking at uh, the nature of, yeah, yeah, Mike, I heard that, uh, the, the nature of, of true repentance. But think about what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that when we are saved, we are a new creation, brand new creation. We're not renovated we haven't um, turned over a new leaf. We are a brand new, completely new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, right? The old has what? It's passed away. The new has come. We have been created new. Romans 6 tells us that we have been baptized with Christ in his death and raised to new life in our union with Christ. Uh, Paul said, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to literally nothing, is what he says. He says, brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The Bible also tells us that we, we have God's Holy Spirit living inside of us. I want you to think about, I was meditating on this on the way to the, the church this morning, to have the Holy Spirit inside of us literally means that we have the power of the one who created the universe residing inside of us. How astounding is that? Yeah, my question is, and the question that we started to answer last couple weeks is, why doesn't it feel that way? How many woke up this morning feeling that way? How many lived yesterday feeling that way? We don't, do we? That's not our human experience. We don't have this dualistic nature where we have an old nature and a new nature and they're warring against each other. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that our old nature was crucified with Christ. So then if, if we have this new life inside of us, uh, why does Paul have to say stuff like, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions? Why does he say that if we don't have two natures? Why does he say that our body was crucified? The answer is, we began to look at last week, is that even though we have been raised to new life, even though we have this new uh, life inside of us, our new life is entrapped in a body of sin. We still have our flesh. Paul called it the body of sin. Okay? The body of sin is that physical body that so easily responds to sinful impulses. And we ended last week by noting that one day we would receive a new body, right? A, the, the Paul called it a spiritual body empowered by the Holy Spirit where sin will no longer be a temptation. There will be no more sin. We will have no more sinful leanings. The only beachhead where sin can attack a Christian 
is in his mortal body. Think of it. Temptation comes our way how? Through our eyes, our ears, our other senses. And through these, we find the pathway of temptation. One day that body's going to be glorified and forever be out of sin's reach. But in the meantime, we live in a mortal body subject to corruption and death. One last subject on this statement will lead us into the message today. That is, our body still has sinful passions because the brain and the thinking processes are part of the mortal body. Is your brain part of your mortal body? The answer is yes. So therefore, it's subject to corrupt thinking processes and Satan uses that to lure people back into sin in whatever ways that he can. And this is what we didn't have time to cover last week, did we? You would have been here another day or two. And, and so what I want to talk about today is how do our minds and our thoughts affect the sin in our lives? Because that's a very important topic, isn't it? The, the life of the mind and so forth. Now, when you look at Scripture, you're going to find that there's, it's not concrete how all these things relate. It gives us a lot of guidance. And when I say that, what I mean is that there are distinctions. And I'm going to use three biblical terms. And those terms are heart, conscience, and mind. Those are three things that the, mind talk, or that the Bible talks about. And it's very difficult to make a clear distinction because they overlap. You can't compartmentalize and say, well, this is my heart, this is my conscience, and this is my mind. They're interrelated and they overlap. But I'm going to do the best I can to describe how the Bible teaches those things today and hopefully give you an idea how you fight sin in the mind and the thought processes, okay? And so we're going to start out with the heart. And we're going to spend the most time on, on the heart. What is the heart? You know, we, we have the Valentine's cards and you know, we have a bleeding heart and all those sort of things, right? But the, when the, both the Old and the New Testaments refer to the term heart, what they're referring to is the real you. The real you is your heart. It refers to the, the basic inner disposition of a person who you either live in obedience or disobedience to God in His covenant with you. So it's your, it's your disposition. The word heart is the most comprehensive of the three terms, and it, it captures the fundamentally moral nature of a human being before our Creator. And so it's, it's a big blanket term the term heart it's who you are you want to know who you are it's your heart that, that's who you are the bible says this keep your heart with all vigilance for out of it flow the springs of life so the heart everything about your life flows from your heart the real you um, the lord told samuel the lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but where does God look? God looks on the heart. He looks at the real you. And that can be different than your actions, by the way. 
He, the, the Matthew 6.21, our heart determines our object of worship. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus said you can't worship God and money. If you live for money, you're worshiping it. If you live for God, you worship God. And so it's from our heart it, that determines the object of our worship. And so if the heart is the seat of a person's spiritual moral life, then, then it stands to reason, this is very important, that our thoughts, our emotions, and the will originate in our heart. Correct? Makes sense, doesn't it? The heart thinks and remembers. The Bible says in Genesis that God saw the, the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intention of the thoughts of the what? The heart was only evil continually. And so out of the heart, we think. And I'm going to talk about that when I get to the mind. The heart feels and experiences because Proverbs says that even in laughter, the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. So even in laughter, the heart may ache. You can laugh and have a good time and inwardly you're hurting, right? Jesus said that the heart chooses and acts. He said that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know what a person thinks about? You want to know what's in their heart? Listen to how they talk. They're inseparable, aren't they? That's pretty scary. But the Bible, but we also know that there are influences on our hearts. What influences our hearts? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought about that? What, what, is, what is the dominant influence on our heart? There are three influences or more actually, but I'm going to cover three influences on our heart. The first one is the body. The body influences our heart. Now, what do I mean by this? What I mean is that it is the body that carries out the heart desires. Every thought, every emotion, every decision to act will be materially represented in the brain-body level. Right? You, you cannot experience the world your, your, let me back up. Your heart experiences the world around you through the body. Okay? We can't move from the heart to the world around us without utilizing our bodies. So, so from last week, then, we know that the body is the context in which the heart functions. That context, now think about the context of your body for just a minute. Okay? The context could be health or disease, or somewhere on that spectrum. Hormones may be balanced or imbalanced. A person may be able or disabled. Either situation demands a response of the person as she, he or she stands before the Lord. And the initiation of this response resides in the heart. But here's the thing that you must remember that, that gives you absolutely no excuse. Because our hearts respond to the influences of the body, but the body doesn't have the final say. 
at the most, our, our body can only influence our hearts to make a righteous or sinful choice. That's the most it can do. Scriptures affirm the powerful influences of the, the body on the heart, calls them passions. And these bodily influences range from, think about the influences on, on your heart. A missed night's sleep. A common cold. Could be a traumatic brain injury or paralysis or a cancer-ridden body or a pain-racked body or a brain shriveling in the wake of Alzheimer's or uh, even a body in robust good health that feels great. All of these things exert influence on our heart, don't they? Every single one of them. But they're not determinative. They don't make you feel that way. You lose a, a night's sleep and you're grumpy the next day, that was your heart. And your body was influencing the grumpiness that was already in your heart, right? you like, it's awful quiet in here. <laughs> Let me give you a second influence. Our relationships. In addition to our bodies, another factor is the relational influences. What do I mean by that? A boy who grew up under the constant displeasure of a distant alcoholic father moves from relationship to relationship sometimes. It's not an excuse. That's an influence. Um, and yearning for affirmation that maybe he never received, that he should be received from the Lord, by the way. An adolescent girl with a controlling, uh, per perfectionistic set of parents wastes away with anorexia. An abused child becomes an abusing parent. Experiences seem to cry out that other people, their beliefs, their words, and actions shape us for better, for worse. And they do influence us, but they are in no way determinative. But these things have an influence on our heart. Other people do not make us sin. They don't. Therefore, let me give you a series of illegitimate statements. Ready? I became angry because he belittled me. Right? Does the Lord really expect me to love my wife sacrificially when she does not treat me with respect? You can't use that as an excuse. That's an illegitimate statement. Or, I can't treat my husband with respect when he's been unkind and neglectful to me. Those are all illegitimate statements. They are absolutely untrue. Scriptures affirm that others can influence, but these influences are not determinative. Other people simply do not have that kind of power. Other people can create a context where obedience or disobedience is going to become easier or more difficult, right? Is that true? It is. But they ultimately cannot coerce our hearts to sin. James says this. James says, but each person is tempted, how? When he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Let me just tell you something. You're grumpy this morning because it was in your heart. You don't love your husband because it's not in your heart. 
or respect your husband. You don't love your wife because it's not in your heart. You see, it's awful quiet in here. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm, I'm hoping you're thinking. Let me give you another influence on our heart. Last one. The influence of our culture is less immediate than our relationships, but it still exerts influence. The ideals of our culture weave their way into our hearts. We take on the ideals of culture. For example, you deserve better. Remember, remember way back in the primitive times of TV when they had that commercial, you deserve a break today? Remember that? Ideas such as, you should have a long, leisurely retirement. A woman's value is directly proportionate to the type of career that she has. Yeah, sure, our culture doesn't come out and say that in so many words, but watch the entertainment. Watch what they value. And if you're not careful, you take on the values of every culture, and that influences your heart, right? The problem with culture is it's, it's the glasses that we see through. It's the lenses we see through. It's the air that we breathe, and it's really hard to see outside our culture. It's easy for us to go to another country and see the influence. Right, Leslie? I mean, you see everything about Americans. I'm going to pick on you for just a, a minute. But, but you go over to a different country. You go over to England, and you think to yourself, why do those people do the things that they do? or Poland, or wherever else, other countries you've been in. And you see the culture is different, and you can see the culture very clearly. But when you're swimming in the culture, you take on the ideals, and you don't even realize you've done it. The Bible tells us that in their natural state, our hearts are sinful. Did you know that? Jesus said, out of the heart uh, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, sl uh, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus said that's what comes out of the heart. Now you must understand that is the state of the heart of every person born into the world. That's the state. But the Bible teaches something else, and this is really good. And this is something that we all need to grasp. That when we get saved, we get a completely new heart. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Is that not talking about salvation? When we are saved, the Spirit is placed in us and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So everybody who is in, new, is in Christ now has a new heart. That description that, that Jesus gave of coming out of the heart, that's the heart of someone who is not in Christ. Somebody who is in Christ has this new heart. So when we get saved, God gives us a heart disposed to obey Him. We are totally transformed, but we are influenced by our body of sin. We are influenced by the relationships that we 
cultivate and we're influenced by the culture around us. They don't cause us to sin because we have a new heart, but they can influence our hearts, you see. So that's the heart. That's the all-encompassing term, right? Um, Let's talk about the second term, which is conscience. Conscience. What is conscience? Conscience is a second biblical term, and it, it is the gift that we receive from God that he designed to warn us about right and wrong. And you can't, again, it's not like you have your heart here, your conscience here, and your mind here. They're all interrelated. Everybody has a conscience. And everybody's conscience was designed to determine right and wrong. It's very clear. Romans chapter number 2. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law... By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So he sets it up right there. The law, talking about the moral law of God, right? Ten commandments, those things that please the, the God. And he goes on to say this. They show that the work of the law is written where? On their hearts, the real you, while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You know what he just said here? We're, I'm going I'm to jump the gun on some of the things I'm going to say. Your conscience can be trained. Isn't that what it says? Their conscience bears witness, and their conflicting what? Thoughts either accuse. See, the conscience affects our thoughts. Either accuse or we excuse ourselves according to our conscience. Now, God programmed every person who has ever lived to have a conscience that tells us right from wrong. But this is important because because sometimes people miss this. Our conscience is not the voice of God. The conscience is not the voice of God. He gave it to us, but it's not the voice of God because our conscience can change. For example... The the prophets in the Old Testament, they thundered God's judgment upon the people of Israel because Israel had become accustomed to sin. One of the great indictments that came on Israel during the days of Ahab, King Ahab, was that they'd grown so numb and so accustomed to evil that the people tolerated King Ahab's wickedness. It wasn't appalling to them how wicked King Ahab was. And what had happened was hardness of heart had set in. And so you may have ideals as a child that, that told you certain things were wrong, but the power of sin can erode the conscience to the point where your conscience becomes very faint. And a voice in the deepest recesses in, the, in your soul. And when that happens, we call that that your, your conscience has become callous. It's become very faint. And when that happens many times, your conscience can actually condemn what is right and excuse what is wrong. Humans are, are very good at defending ourselves when things go, or, or when we're doing something wrong. Can't we? Well, today's Tuesday. I'm going to have that, that extra dessert today. 
Well, you know, it's midweek Wednesday. I've got to have that dessert today, too. And, and it's Friday, and Friday you've got to have dessert, right? Now, I'm not saying dessert's wrong, but we're good, right? Our, our moral conscience uh, can become so distorted in our culture that, that our culture calls evil good and good evil. Our culture literally does that. That's how distorted the conscience of our culture is. Our moral conscience has been adjusted to suit our ethic. Think. You see it very clearly today. The, the, the abortion debate. The pro-abortion crowd has a conscience that is so distorted that killing babies is good and preserving babies' lives is evil. They literally believe that. That's how distorted the conscience can become. Now, how did that conscience get that way? Years and years of being trained opposite of truth. So our conscience can be trained. On the other hand, and this is a good thing, the Bible says that our conscience can be sharpened and strengthened. And that's the kind of conscience you want? I know I do. How? How? How does our conscience become strengthened? The first thing that happens is that we get saved. And, and when we get saved, the Bible says that God makes our hearts sprinkled clean from what? An evil conscience. In other words, that new heart, that new life living inside of you, begins now to have influence on a, on a conscience that maybe had been twisted. But Satan is the accuser, isn't he? And he would love, love, love for our conscience to merciless accuse us, mercilessly. But since Christ's atonement fully satisfied the wrath of God, we have confidence in our forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you have a sensitive conscience... Satan will use that sensitive conscience to accuse you of every sin you've ever committed, including the sins of your past. And it can rob you of your joy. You look at your past and you think to yourself, I was so bad before I got saved. And Satan will use that to rob you of your joy. Satan will use the fact that that you committed a sin last week, that whatever sin that happens to be, to rob you of your joy when the Bible says that if you confess it, God is, he's first of all faithful, isn't he? And he's also just, and because he's faithful and just, he'll forgive. And that is how, that is how the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? In other words, our faith communicates to our conscience that we have been pardoned by the precious blood of Christ, and so therefore our conscience need no longer to be bothering us about things concerning sin. Now, as I said, our conscience is not perfect. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8. 
Our conscience is not perfect. Paul dealt with all kinds of conscience issues, a lot with Corinthians and in Romans, in Galatians, different places. But in the Corinthian church, some people had weak consciences concerning idols. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 6 to 9. He says this, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. All right, so what's he doing here? Simply saying, we all know that there's only one God. Okay? However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Then he finishes off by saying, Food will not commend us to God, so we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not cause somehow someone to stumble if they're weak. All right. Now, what is he saying here? He's simply saying that truth from the Bible is that an idol is nothing at all. But because some people were into idolatry so greatly, they, have a, they can't eat meat offered to an idol because uh, their conscience bothers them. And so today, modern application is that they have a conscience that's informed by tradition as well as truth. And when that tradition uh, comes up against the truth, People sometimes hold standards that are not necessarily biblical ones. Should I name some and get myself in trouble or just keep on moving? I remember the first time I ever preached without a tie on. It wasn't at this church, by the way. Is it my other church? Well, you know everybody's got to wear a tie. Where is that in Scripture? That's a, that's a tradition, right? By the way, keep wearing ties if you wear ties. Um, I enjoy wearing a tie. Um, Sunday night service. If you grew up with a Sunday night service, well, that church, they don't even have a Sunday night service. I could go on and on, but you know what I'm talking about, the traditions. Conscience can be needlessly condemning in, in an area where there is no biblical issue. Let me give you one that I struggled with for the last three weeks. Literally, because of my training. You know what it is? When I came up here this morning, the, the first thing I usually say every Sunday morning when I walk up here after saying hello is turn to X passage, isn't it? Because decades of training has taught me you preach through passages. But what have the last three weeks been? Topical. So my conscience, there's a part in the back of my head that says this is wrong. It's, I know it's not, by the way, but it just feels wrong. Does that make sense? Because our conscience has been trained to go a certain way. All right. The conscience reacts to convictions of the mind and therefore can be encouraged and sharpened in accordance with God's Word. Wise Christians master biblical truth so that the conscience is completely informed and judges what is right 
because it's responding to God's word. And that's critical. You have to be in God's word. Be in God's word. Be in God's word. A regular diet of scripture will strengthen weak conscience and restrain an overactive one. Conversely, error, human wisdom, and wrong moral influences filling the mind will corrupt or cripple the conscience. We understand that, don't we? I read, I read an illustration about conscience that I think is very helpful. Let me read this illustration. The author said this. said, the conscience functions like a skylight, not a light bulb. It lets light into the soul, but it does not produce its own light. Its effectiveness is determined about by the amount of pure light that we expose it to and how clean we keep it. That's your conscience. Let me say it one more time. Your conscience... Its effectiveness is determined by the amount of pure light that you expose it to and how clean you keep it. That's a very important statement. There's one more New Testament principle about conscience that was referred to in 1 Corinthians 8, but I'm going to read from Romans 14.23. And that says this, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Never violate your conscience. And from 1 Corinthians 8, we saw never encourage someone to violate the conscience. Why? Their conscience may be trained wrong by tradition or whatever, but it is the conscience, remember what I said at the very beginning, the conscience that God uses to train us what is right and wrong, right? To warn us what is right and wrong. And when you get somebody used to violating a conscience, ignoring a conscience, you have removed from them a device that God uses to help them to point them on the right way. And that's why Paul said um, to not create stumbling blocks. Don't cause somebody else to stumble, Okay from whatever is not from faith is sin. And so we have the heart, the real you. That, that encompasses everything almost. You have the conscience that the Bible talks about. Last term I have in mind is the mind. Okay, The mind. The New Testament, especially the writings of Paul, when the Bible uses the term mind, it's speaking about our thinking process. How we think. For example, Paul, uh, Paul said this in Romans, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile, hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Now, I'm just going to pause. I could spend the whole rest of the sermon, I could spend two sermons on this. But the mind set on flesh is hostile to God. That is the state of every mind before salvation. No matter how nice they are, how good they are, that's the, 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 the set of somebody. This means that all unsaved have minds that are hostile to God because their minds are not set on things of the Spirit. The Bible says this about their minds, that Satan has blinded their minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Now, you notice it says in their case, this is not some special category of a person. It's not a special category because 2 Corinthians 4, 3 says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing and that encompasses who? All the unsaved. So when you put that together with verse number four, all the unsaved have their minds blinded by Satan. Make sense? What Paul says. The Bible also says that God hardened the minds of the Israelites in 2 Corinthians 3.14, but their minds were hardened. He's talking about Israel. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away, you see. So the, the eyes of the Israelites, by and large, were veiled, blinded. It is, now, how does the mind become clear and able to see? How, how can a mind see spiritual truth? Answer, the Lord. The Lord does it. On the Emmaus Road, remember in Luke 24, the road to Emmaus? Jesus is walking with the disciples. They don't realize it's Jesus. And the scripture says this, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's God that opens the minds. By the way, let me say this. When God opens your mind to understand scriptures, you get saved. Period. There is never a case in Scripture where God opened a person's mind to understand spiritual truth and they didn't get saved. Not one case. When your mind is open to understand spiritual truth, you receive salvation. The mind is tied to the thinking processes of our brain and therefore... Um, are subject to the content of the influences we put in it. We, we, we talked about that already a little bit. That is why Christians are frequently warned to think in certain ways. Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Jesus Christ. That's a command, which means you have a choice whether or not you do that. The, our, but the biggest command to Christians is to renew our minds. Most, if you pull up the word mind in the New Testament, most frequently it's renewal. The Bible says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? How are we transformed? By renewing our minds, that by testing you may discern the will of God, which is good and acceptable and, and perfect. Uh, gentlemen, for some reason my, my clicker is not working. Can you? Thank you. Thank you. Um, he, he tells us this. He says, put off your old self, thank you, uh, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed how? Where? In the spirit of your minds that by testing you may discern what the will of God is that's good and acceptable. I'm sorry, um, I'm reading two different verses. I created my own version there. Let me, let me start over. Renewed in the spirit of minds and to put on self, a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
And um, Philippians 4.8 tells us to think on things that are virtuous, lovely, worthy of praise, and so on and so forth. So we have a choice, and, and we need to decide to think about the right things. Remember what I said about the mind. A mind is a product of our brains. All of our brains think differently. God created some of you with a creative mind, and some of you with a technical mind. Some of you are relational in your mind, and some of you are non-relational in your minds. And we all think different ways. Some people attack problems from this way. Some attack from this way. We all think differently. And so therefore, a mind is a product of our, our brain and our thinking process. But the Old Testament has a, a very important word that, talks, that teaches us how to renew our minds. And that word is meditate. And this was a lot of fun to study back when I studied um, a few years ago. But there are two Hebrew words translated meditate in the Old Testament scriptures. One is, is found, for example, in Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you will meditate on it day and night. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be, do, be careful to observe all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. That's one Hebrew word for meditate. You know what it means? It means to muse. It means to talk to yourself about it. The psalmist used the same word when he says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. In other words, when you can't sleep, muse on the things of God. Think about the things of God. But there's another Hebrew word for meditate found many times in Scripture, particularly in the Psalms, most particularly Psalm 119. And he says, the psalmist says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Uh, Psalm 119, 23, even though the princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Psalm 119, in verse number 27, make me understand your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous work. You know what that word meditate means? It means to speak enthusiastically about, to, to bring about, or maybe a good word would be to praise. So think about it. You can either muse to yourself and meditate on God's word, or one of my favorite things to do, hey, I was reading in, in the Psalms today, and I read this, and I was thinking about this, and what you're doing when you're talking to someone is you're, you're meditating on that scripture. You're telling people about the scripture, you, and so you're rethinking it, see? That, that's the word meditation. That's renewing your minds. And when we renew our minds, its focus turns to the things of God, and these spiritual truths shape our minds. But when our minds are on earthly things, we focus on earthly things, and the Bible says that that is deadly. Think, think about Jesus' parable of the soils, the third soil, the thorny ground soil that, that choked the seed. He, Jesus said that that is the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked out the Word of God. What's going on? The person's thinking about things of the world more than they're thinking about the things of God. So it's important, dear believer, to watch your media consumption. Because 
when you watch a, a two-hour movie, you have just spent two hours meditating on whatever that movie is about. Am I right? When you drive, commute to work, and you spend your time listening to talk radio, whatever they're talking about, you're meditating on. You spend your night surfing the internet, thinking, uh, what am I going to surf about tonight? And so you, you pick your favorite hobby, your favorite hobby horse, or, or your favorite topic. You're meditating on it. You need to watch the consumption that comes into your minds. You need to intentionally read the Bible. Be intentional about listening to sermons. Be intentional about going to Bible studies. It is these things that help us think about heavenly things and set our minds on things above. And when you do that, there's two things that happen when you, when you focus your minds. Number one, it helps train your conscience, doesn't it? To sharpen it, to determine right and wrong. And the second thing it does, it also helps your heart to have your heart set on heavenly things. And so out of your heart, instead, instead of coming anger because you spent four hours watching Fox News, CNN, Newsbusters, whatever else it is, instead of having a heart of anger, you have a heart of joy. Instead of having a heart of corruption because you've been watching all kinds of slime coming out of Hollywood, Netflix, Amazon Prime, and all that sort of stuff, you have a mind that is soaked on scriptures. And so it, it gets in your heart, and that's what comes out of your heart. See, they're all interrelated. Sin comes from our heart, is acted through our bodies. Temptation comes through our senses, our body senses. And so feed your minds on spiritual things. Practice resisting sin and train your conscience and change your heart and think on the things of God. Lord, I, I thank you for what the Bible says about how we change from the inside, that you have given us a new heart. All, everyone who is in Christ has a new heart. But we are still called to train our minds and our consciences and to fill our hearts with pure and lovely and truthful and honest and just things and not the things that are gathered around our passions and our lusts and our desires. Lord, help us to think clearly about these things and where we need, right, even right now, even right now, need to repent. I pray that we will repent and, and change and, and determine that we're going to serve you anew. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.